Hello and welcome to The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast with a casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in modern. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stan, what's up, man? Good to see you. Yeah, great to see you too. I'm waving. We're waving. Also with us here in Chicago, the godfather himself, Dave. Habagah! Hey, are you guys ready to talk about some deck dumps today? Because uh, that's what we're doing. Get ready. And last but not least, it's our resident snowman, Zach. Kool-Aid! My name is Zach Callhan. I'm ready for these dumps. On this week's episode, Tournament Report will look at GP Toronto as well as last weekend's Nerd Rage Milwaukee 5K. We'll also take a closer look at the newest decks popping up in the modern 5-0 deck dumps. And finally, in the wind down, we're going to take another listener question. But first, knock knock. Who's there? Housekeeping! <laughs> we want to send a quick thanks and shout out to the guys at Turn One Thoughtsies, a fellow modern podcast we've been chatting with online. They've been super nice and welcoming, and they make a great show that we learn from too. So if you haven't heard Turn One Thoughtsies before, check them out wherever you listen to podcasts. Yeah, it's a small modern podcast family. So thanks for the kind welcome, and it's good uh, good to be there with you guys. All right, with that out of the way, let's jump over to Zach at the news desk with this week's tournament report. Yeah, so we'll start off with the clearly more important tournament that was the Nerd Rage Milwaukee that me and Stan attended uh, over the weekend. Well, Zach, that actually did have more uh, video coverage and probably text coverage. Uh, are we jumping into this already? <laughs> Well, we can talk about it by talking about what this New Ridge event did have. Maybe we can touch on what a possible GP did not have. Yes. An unnamed GP. A GP that will not be named. A GP to be named later. So for this one, there were two feature matches going on at the the table. There were two guys commenting on it, and there's another dude on, like, AV. So, like, you could see in the corner, there were these two guys with uh, headsets on that were commenting on this game pretty intensely. Then there was a guy managing the feed managing the like the qualities of it it just felt like and they were in this small room in a convention center and it felt very much like a team came in knowing what they wanted to do and executed it very well oh, props to those guys yeah i watched some of the video coverage the video coverage was sick you know it did not seem very amateur level at all i know that nerd rage has been trying to expand this uh this tournament series and it really felt totally pro like i mean it wasn't like scg level but it was like you know just right below it it was great yeah, they had said this was their biggest one in Wisconsin, and it was over double the size of the one last year. So how many people do you think were in the tournament? The, uh, 243 was what it was capped at, I believe. So you and Stan were 241 and 240 at the end? or Yeah. What do you we mean? We did way better than that. Yeah, I, I, please, I know. Uh, I know. I'm face. kidding with you guys. Uh, Zach, so this was, I don't know if people remember, but last week you talked about how this is your first tournament of that size. So what what was it like? What was the uh, the experience of playing Magic for nine rounds like? Give us a little bit of the highlights. It went a lot better and than I than I had imagined or I could have conceived. It was a really draining, and luckily I was there with some pretty neat people and nice people. So I was I did pretty bad at and first. And also I Stan. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> some close personal friends in addition to Stan. We're not friends; we're colleagues. But uh, I had lost my uh, first three rounds and was feeling kind of bummed about it. But I feel like the people I was there with were just very encouraging and like, hey, sometimes that happens, and sometimes you just do lose games. So it, it was nice and reassuring, and then when things got better for me and I started winning more, they were also there to support me, and I also brought a lot of snacks and had some good jokes, uh, met a few new people, etc. It was a really good vibe. 
out of the nine people I played, almost everybody was incredibly pleasant and very nice to talk to. So you said you lost your first three rounds, but kind of what happened after that? So the first round I played against Boggles, which is just a terrible matchup for Scred. Game one is near unwinnable unless I can get down a Blood Moon before they land any equipment. Mm-hmm. Or I get an Anger rightly time, but it's super hard. And then I can bring in Chalice, which makes the matchup much better. And I saw it game two, but then they uh, played a Primordial Seal, which gets around Chalice on one. So, oof. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah. Oof. Uh, Then I played Burn, which is a very also tough matchup. And they just got through my hate as well. And then round three, I played Jund, and that was a much closer game. And I feel like that one was just sort of luck of the draw. And then I feel like with that, I got my tempo back. I played a Drake's deck that was incredibly close. And then from there, I just played a series of very close and good games. It felt like some very high-level modern. And it's not to say that my local game store isn't competitive or fun, but it was different there. Like, you can't take moves back. Like, I, right. I played against an opponent that missed... Uh, they cracked a bobble and I and I said, okay, untap, upkeep, draw. And after I drew, they went, wait. I went, no. Like I announced it, dude. Like you had your chance. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but how? So so you ended up going six and three, though. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a very interesting and fun experience. Everyone I played was very good, and every matchup, like I said, was very crisp. Huge props for for not giving up when you had your back against the wall and just playing six matches in a row, kind of like elimination style to just keep yourself alive and having fun in the tournament for as long as you could. That's awesome to do. Rattle off six in a row. It was super tense. What's good about that, Zach, too, is right. I mean, that's probably was your goal going in, right? I imagine is to try to go. My goal, honestly, was to go five, four. My goal was just to win more than I lost. And like, there's a point where I'm like, well, if I go five, four, even right now, like that's a goal, like I'm going to do good today. So being able to beat that even by one game felt really nice. Did you have any sub goals? Like, do you felt like you played particularly well or like make good mulliganing decisions or kind of, you know, or, or played around certain things that are hard for you to beat or? Yeah, I feel like I only had one real misplay of the day, and they they didn't. It didn't matter because they could have answered if I didn't misplay anyway, and I lost the game. But aside from that, I would say I should go to be willing to go to five to find hate cards more often, which is something I've said on this podcast that is something people should do. And I feel like by not doing it, I definitely kept riskier hands that I got punished by. Yeah, it's hard to do. It's hard to make yourself go down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, f- five just feels so much different than six, even if it's only one card. It j- it's a world of difference. Yeah, and so Stan, you were there too. What what did you play, and what uh, how'd it go? So I played Mono Red Phoenix again. It was the same deck that I played at Indie, though I decided to try the optimizations that the second place finisher at SCG, the team SCG, did last week. Basically, I took out uh, the one of Lightning Axe and the one of Shard Volley, and put two Bedlam Reveler in my main board, which I was pretty happy with. Mm-hmm. I went five and four, pretty pleased. I didn't really go in with really obvious, tangible goals. In general, I want to do better in every tournament I play, but I've sort of been averaging around five, four, and I think winning more than you lose is a pretty okay place to be in modern. I think it speaks to your skill level and understanding of the format, and then after that, you kind of just have to hope you have good draws and good luck. I think that the most reasonable goals to set for yourself in a t- modern tournament are, am I going to make the right decisions and you know, win or lose? I'm going to feel good about being able to assess that I wanted to play well, which is more important than winning. And it's much more controllable than winning. Yeah, I think I made some okay decisions throughout. 
I definitely made a couple mistakes. I was a little bit sleep deprived before the tournament. I had a really rough night, <laughs> go like the morning of, and I think I got about three hours of sleep. Oh it, man! If I wasn't driving three people, I may have just bailed. But people were counting on me, and I was so tired that I fell asleep between rounds. Oh my! Which is one of the nice things about playing Mono Red Phoenix. You either win really fast or you lose really fast because whatever yeah, there's your some comfy chairs. Yeah, there were some really comfy chairs, and I, I dozed off. And I, I dozed off after I lost, like, two in a row. Maybe it was three in a row. And then I took a little nap, and then when I woke up, I, I won a couple in a row. So I think it was really good for me to to do that. Great. So do we want to talk about the top 16 here, Zach? Sure, yeah. I'll run through it real quick. Okay. Uh, first was humans. Second, Bant spirits. So both Third, were pretty boggles. stock builds, right? Of yeah, yeah, humans yeah. Humans and spirits were pretty, pretty normal builds. Yeah, there wasn't too much spice in this uh, top eight in general uh, a lot of the decks i saw nothing no one had any neat one ofs or anything everyone seemed to be running pretty tight list yeah yeah so first human second bant spirits third boggles and fourth is it phoenix is it phoenix did have two uh terramancers terries so that's interesting that's a card that we had talked about in our preview episode mm-hmm. yeah and it's taken a couple of weeks to take off hasn't it so we made a note here that it was in nine of the 16 is it phoenix decks that showed up in the channel fireball day two yeah from gp toronto which we'll talk about in a little bit and then it's popped up in a couple of the different lists here that we saw from the nerd rage do you guys think that this is just kind of like uh must use now or what do you think i'm not tempted to use it right away and i actually want to defer to scg all-star ross merriam who basically compared it to all the other tertiary threats being swift spear Young Pyromancer, even Pyromancer's Ascension, where it's not bad, but it's never exactly what you want. And if you like it, go for it. There's some matchups it's good in, some matchups it's worse in. And I think at a certain point, you kind of have to make a preference call. Do you think people are just going for it because it's new? Basically, it's just a new toy that they're trying out or what? Well, it's not bad. So at best, it's a 5-5 flyer for two. It's on plan because you are getting lots of spells in your graveyard. But sometimes if you have no graveyard, it's just a flying man. And that's not doing anything in modern. Easy to get rid of because of Faithless Looting. But I tried it. I wasn't thrilled by it. I think it's okay. I wouldn't blame anyone for trying it. But So what metagames do you think it's better in? Like like fewer removal decks? Yeah, maybe if there isn't as much mid-range around. What do you think, Zach? Yeah, I mean, the the three of the Phoenix decks I played had blue in them, and every time I saw this card, I went, oh, Lightning Bolt, Scred, Anger, whatever. It, it never stuck around, and I feel like there's so it's so easy to kill, and even it's easy to chump early on, so I feel like you have to play it and be able to pretty quickly activate it for this to be something that I think is good, and be and have it live those couple turns as well. Yeah, so you played decks that also had Terramander in them. Like you saw the you actually saw the card in the matchup. Yes, I, I scredded and bolted and angered the gods at all throughout the day. Yes, interesting. That means lots of people are running it. Then what's weird to me is that lightning bolt is still like the most played card in modern. It's like yeah, exactly. 50, like fifty percent of the decks run it or something. So where, when is Terramander going to be good? <laughs> when they ban lightning bolt, that's when Terramander is <laughs> good. <laughs> Maybe that's enough on uh, of dunking on poor Terry, but interesting discussion. <laughs> My name's Terry. <laughs> I think the too long didn't read is the card is fine. Sometimes it'll get you there. Sometimes it'll feel really bad. And you just have to be careful and be smart. Yeah. Great. So the fifth through eighth place decks are Urx's Death Shadow, Dredge, piloted by Sam Black, 
Blue White Spirit, which has a Deputy of Detention in it, which just is probably a better Reflector Mage at the moment, all said and done. And then uh, Eighth Burn with Skewer, and then they're splashing green for a Cinder Vines. Cinder Vines seem to have been popping up a lot over the weekend too, right? Yeah, absolutely. People didn't bring in against me, but when I talked to somebody, they showed me it in their sideboard afterwards. It's good, right? I think Eidolon's particularly good right now, and even if the damage is cut in half, it being one-sided is very powerful, especially that... Like we said, that Phoenix deck's everywhere, and they're casting how many spells? So that's what? Sometimes five, six, seven free damage you're getting? Yeah, exactly. For two mana. Yeah, and then later you can cash in to blow something up if you need to. Still seems good. Yeah. And then 9th through 16th was Mono Red Phoenix, Mono Red Phoenix, Boggles, Burn, Hollow One, Affinity, Grizzle Brand, and Grixis Death Shadow. So nothing too interesting or nothing that we haven't seen in a while. <clears throat> it's interesting that there were two boggles decks or bogles decks in the top 16 but that's totally unusual there wasn't a critical mass but like i said i played boggles first round and i saw and heard whispers of more than a few other boggles players i would love to have known what the actual percentage was represented but i feel like there was at least maybe 10 if not more hmm. it's definitely underplayed right now i think it blew me out of the water game one like i said it was i can't beat that deck and it showed me that repeatedly cool all right, well, thanks for the updates on your guys' exploits over the weekend. Do we want to talk about GP Toronto now? The larger but harder-to-watch tournament? Yes, sadly. And arguably the more important tournament for Modern as a format and Magic as a game. You would think so. There weren't any posts on like Reddit about the Nerd Rage event, or like I didn't see any articles about those lists or anything. Like It was just some local thing. So for this like supposedly big name worldwide even tournament it's harder to find coverage than it is what ostensibly is like a tri-county area event yeah you know for what it's worth the nerd ridge event did have several very professional magic players sam black was the one that i know by name but i heard talks of other pro tour playing magic players in the room that i just wasn't aware of yeah it's a very competitive environment for sure so should we talk a little bit more about coverage here or lack of coverage? Or do we feel like we already kind of said our piece? I mean, what can you say? We have no idea what will ever happen. All of these things are kept from the consumer until a change, actually. So the, the fact that like this doesn't have coverage is a, you look at it and it's like, here's a bunch of decks put into like the roulette wheel, put into the bingo shaker, and like some decks get spit out on the other side. That's that's kind of the issue for me is when I can't actually see the games being played or even go back and watch them after the fact. It just kind of seems like, okay, some more modern randomness happened. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunate that I, I think that if this is really still, you know, Wizards' most popular format for the moment, you know, as far as Grand Prix attendance goes, as far as stream viewership goes, which, you know, maybe that's a moot point now that there aren't streams anymore. Um, it's unfortunate to see them kind of back off so much. I wonder a little bit if part of what they're doing here is waiting for third parties to pick up the coverage baton a little bit kind of like we talked about last week with why they don't have people writing articles about deck dumps that maybe what they want to do is trying to push that all the actual coverage responsibility and everything off onto the tos a la nerd rage and star city games and maybe channel fireball will pick up the baton for magic fests i don't know we'll see i think that's a really interesting thought dave and i think that uh something that goes along with that is it's interesting that the company making the game was no longer commenting on even the third party. So that makes them a little uh, more unbiased. When, when you talk about cards, you talk about design and stuff, right? Because if you have people from Wizards commenting on stuff, talking about stuff, there there's a, a company line or a message they have to tow, right? 
But it's interesting that if someone else was commenting on it, they maybe don't have the sort of obligation or... To hype things. Yeah, yeah. Basically, they don't feel like they're obligated to hype things. Could be. We want to quickly look at the top eight here. Okay, so the GP Toronto, the top eight list are... And this list is not exact. We don't know exactly what happened. I We know the first, second place, the third and fourth are just both listed as fourth, and then the last ones are always place. Maybe they tied. We don't know. So first place is Grix's Death Shadow. Very stock list, nothing fancy. Deck is still very good. Uh, second was listed as Tesserator, but it's War Prison, which is what Lantern decks have really turned into. So this deck is, I don't know if you guys have seen this before, it's very intense. You're doing things like, uh, worrying to get, uh, welding jars to regenerate artifacts in response to spells to kill them. Wild stuff like that. It's very interesting. I watched a player in response to someone casting a Karn were for a needle naming Karn. So it resolved and they couldn't do anything. Whoa. Yeah, just stuff. Yeah, every turn you have to be doing things like that with this deck. It's That's brutal. Yeah, but so that took second. Uh, then we have an Is It Phoenix deck. Pretty stock. It does run the two uh, Terramanders and an Is It Charm in the main. Then Titan Shift, once again, pretty stock list, very good combo deck. Uh, then we have The Rock, green-black, uh, pretty stock once again. Looks like Joan without the red to a degree, a little more card advantage. Uh, a Dredge deck that has a very similar 75 that a lot of other decks have. The deck seems maybe not solved, but people have seemingly agreed on what a, a good competitive list looks like. Yeah, for sure. We have another Is It Phoenix deck. This one doesn't have Terramander. It has a Pyramid's Ascension, which is a card Stan mentioned earlier. And then we have another green-black rock list coming in. Uh, this one just runs a little less walkers, and no Abrupt Decays is the only difference. So somehow two black-green rock out of nowhere. Yeah, I mean, I think the reason that rock is, I think, one of the only sort of winning mid-range decks right now is because in a world of such aggressive decks with you know, burn being a huge percentage of the metagame and is a Phoenix being a huge percentage of the metagame rock takes extremely low damage off its lands. And so it's able to run more thoughtsies in the main as well. So if you can, if you go from two to three thoughtsies, it seems like a small thing, but you're able to get kind of the higher CMC combo pieces as well. So you're taking less off your lands. You're able to put that back into your more powerful hand disruption. So when mid-range comes into play, I'm not surprised it's the rock. Yeah, it looks like the the these decks were also maybe configured, the, at least the one that Lucas Seau was playing, was configured a little bit to go against land, like uh, Titan, basically, because not only they have four Field of Ruin and four Assassin's Trophy, but they also had four Fulminator Mage in the <laughs> sideboard. So it looks like they were just coming hard at anything that was using land yeah. as a, as an option too. Great. Well, I mean, I think that it would have been, it's cool to see this. I was really, I'm always really excited for modern Grand Prix. I just hope that they figure out some way to get us a little bit of something to watch the next time that one of these runs out, because there's nothing quite like watching the first modern tournament after a new set comes out. Yeah. A complication of the coverage being switched over essentially entirely to SEG as well is that they tried to give a lot of information out, but they were doing it sort of in chunks and like by request. Like first it was like the top eight, then it was maybe the top 32, which is actually the top 31. And then there, the day two came out and people were saying, Hey, this isn't the entire day two. Like I, I made day two and my deck, my deck list isn't here. And then I noticed that there was a couple duplicates in there as well. And so it's definitely some, not necessarily growing pains, but changing pains along with doing this for sure. You mean stuff that channel fireball was doing? Yes, exactly. SCG a couple of times. Oh, yeah. I apologize. Yeah. 
Okay. If we want to talk about the top 32 really quickly, we see a lot of, is it Phoenix? At three ad nauseum showed up, which I think is interesting. Definitely probably attacking the metagame that we're seeing right now. We saw a couple humans, a couple hardened scales, a couple burn, a couple tron, a couple dredge, two taking turns decks, which is sweet with that guy with like the quad sleeve version of it. Um, he shows up in the top 32, but not only him, but like another guy playing taking turns, the two aforementioned, Wild. the two aforementioned rock guys, rock players at least. Um, and then uh, about seven one ofs, including the single Grixis Death Shadow person. Um, Grixis Death Shadow actually wasn't a huge part of the day two meta game, which is something that I was thinking would happen. Is that Grixis Death Shadow was really, uh, from what I was hearing and reading, people say it was attacking the KCI meta game, right? And so I thought I thought that it would be dwindling a little bit, and it seemed to have, even though it eventually won. There was only two of them in day two, or. Uh, about two of them in day two, based on the information we had from uh, Channel Fireball. Super interesting. So yeah, I mean, it's 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 discouraging because the information is not only incomplete, um, potentially inaccurate. We can't really we didn't get to watch anything. What if the GP didn't even happen and it's all one big internet hoax? I mean, it totally could be. We'd never know. We saw a picture of people in front of a sweep. That's about it. Yeah, so I guess a couple interesting things that I want to briefly touch on are the Boros soldier the Boros soldiers deck that went 90 um day one and then also there's some Vanifar pod which we'll be talking about later. So pod is alive and real, my friends. Yeah, that deck started out 80, I know, on day one. Yeah, it's not it's not it's not a fake thing. Alright, that was a really long and interesting discussion on this weekend's tournaments or lack thereof. We don't know if they happen or not. I guess we <laughs> know the one we attended happened. The other one remains to be seen. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to do a dive down into the newest decks emerging in modern. And I want to warn you, these aren't brews. These are decks that are starting to prove themselves, and we want to help you understand them and talk about them as well. Stay with us. And we're back. So Ravnica has returned to modern. All hail the pod, right, boys? Don't give away the punchline at the beginning. There, we have more things to look at than just pod, potty, pod, pod. Does Ravnica typically do this? Because I was not around for like earlier, like return to Ravnica sets. Are, there, are they always bringing in some some busted cards? I I would think that a, a set being based around multicolored cards would make the cards inherently better because you can play them in more decks. Or they, I think they just have to give you a better payoff. When it's when they're gold yeah. cards, basically, so yes. they they get yeah. to do stuff that's more powerful for the value. Yeah, I mean, there's a time when Watchwolf, uh, one green, one white for a three three with no abilities, was considered too far and was taking creatures like it was a broken card. But things are different now. But yeah, Return to Ravnica had a ton of modern playable cards: Boros Charm, Skullcrack, Abrupt Decay, Goblin Electromancer, Supreme Verdict, Rest in Peace, Voice Resurgence, and like we can keep naming them. There's a bunch from that set that see play. Exactly. Court of Calling and original Ravnica? Yeah, exactly. Yes, it is. Yep. And then our initial Rav- Ravnica also had the dredge mechanic, which was just, you know, broken. That's that's pretty fair. Pretty fair. Yeah. Didn't it also have Deathrite Shaman? It did also have Deathrite Shaman. Good point. Is it banned in every format but vintage? But so we talked uh, last episode, or actually two episodes ago, I guess, about um, Light at the Stage and Skewer the Critics making some big waves. And then last episode, we kept talking about kind of more cards but it just seems like more and more cards from ravnica allegiance are showing up in uh in decks now 
there weren't that many in the top eight and the top 16 of the two tournaments that we just talked about that were new and surprising. But, you know, last week we talked about how the metagame seemed like it might be ripe for attacking from some new ideas. And mm-hmm. this is one way that when a new set comes out, I like to um, try to see if there's anything new kind of on the fringe that maybe could cross over. And that is by taking a look through five MTGO competitive league five O lists. They come out twice a week, basically on Tuesdays and Fridays. Plus you can kind mm-hmm. of get a bonus one. If you take a look through the modern challenge results, uh, which we I, always do. I, I do. Yeah. I don't know how to get to them other than to go to Google and type in MTGO deck lists. And then it takes you there. I cannot find this page through the actual wizards. Uh, magic.wizards.com. We, we talked about how Wizards is, uh, looking for content creators to talk about these dumps and videos. They are also looking for content creators to tell you how to find these deck dumps. <laughs> so yeah. open up Google. Yeah. <laughs> Can I teach you guys one weird trick? Sure. It's, it's called saving the link to your bookmarks. <laughs> I don't understand what you're saying to me right now. Do you use bookmarks? It. What is this? 1999? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go back to the library, you loser. <laughs> It's under Netscape Navigator File Saved Bookmarks. Okay, I have a question. Yes. In general, how how do you guys feel about the five O deck dumps, and do you think it's a good representation of what's competitive in the format? It's something. You know what I mean? It's like it's 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 what we have at this point, right? So it's so the way these are these the way these are created. I'm sure most people know this is it has to have a certain number of cards different than another deck. Is it like ten now? Or yeah, it's like ten or fifteen even? cards different from one other one. So the, they use a kind of like I think they do it by hand, but they use a kind of rubric for establishing which deck they're going to share and which ones they aren't going to share. Yeah, so it's pretty tailored. So like, let's here's an example. So if if fifteen Tron decks win, you're going to see one of them. Because the list is like seventy four out of seventy five cards the same, right? But if if uh, if an is it Phoenix deck runs, you know, four Terramanders and you know shaves a few gut shots here and has a few different cards there, you might see two decks that are pretty similar. But the deck list now are so similar that you're going to typically see one of an archetype, right? In any and given five zero, you might also see. So, but this leads to both kind of like finding new interesting things, but also a lot of kind yeah. of noise in with the signal, because I think they do choose de- to share decks that are a little bit unique sometimes. So, if someone does run a Tron list that has some spicy stuff in it that might get shared that week instead of the more stock list. And there's really no explanation for why that is. So while it's cool to take a look at these lists to kind of see what stuff might be happening or what's new, I think you have to sort of look at them multiple times and also just be aware of like what is potentially just misleading and what is actually a new trend. Yeah, absolutely. I think another thing that's important to note is that if some uh, one individual is consistently going a 5-0 with a deck, yeah, I play a lot of Magic Online. I'd say I've done close to 20 leagues as of recently with my playing and I've never gone 5-0 and maybe I'm just not good enough but I feel like I can get 4-0 be doing hot feeling great and then I see a combo deck and it's well this is a bad matchup for me oh I lose in two okay so if someone if you 5-0 once maybe you just got lucky like maybe you only had good matchups and you got there but if you are consistently 5-0ing either you are very very incredibly lucky or you're doing something right and it's most likely the later yeah, and the and the comp leagues, these are the comp leagues, not the friendlies. And right, the EV, exactly. The EV is much worse than the comp league, so people have to either be more uh, willing to spend or they're more confident in their abilities to win. If you go 
you're much better going into the friendly leagues and the comp leagues. But if you're above 50%, you're going to be better going into the, the comp leagues and the friendlies. So people have to say, I'm going to win 60% of my, my matches typically, so I come, I'm coming out ahead. Yeah, but on the other hand, the people that you see in these lists, the player names are, are often names that you see repeated. And in fact, yes. like Zach said, you know, there are often the same players 5 owing with the same list. Like there's a player named Shock Troopa who 5 hoes with Mono Blue Tron just about every once a week or maybe sometimes right. both yeah. both deck dumps in a week. And so you sort of have to look at a result like that and go, is this someone just an archetype master or what am I missing here? But it does lead to totally new archetypes emerging sometimes. So last year, this is kind of the story of where Mardu Pyromancer came from, is somebody just kept piling up competitive league trophies with this deck and keeps doing it. Yeah. And keeps doing it. So that's the thing is that they have continued to play selfie sec is the name of this, this person. Yes. I don't know if we know who this player is. You know, I don't know if it's a well unknown pro. I feel like I've tried to look into it a couple of times. It doesn't seem like there's somebody who shows up in like the pro zone, but you know, they've been playing the same deck for basically two years now and getting five O's all the time before the deck was popular while the deck was popular. And after the deck has been popular. Yeah, we see like Lopless John with uh, Counters Company. We see there's a person who does it with uh with Merfolk. So there's yeah, there's people who love love the certain decks and keep on five owing with them. Yeah. So either either they play a ton or they win a ton. Probably both. So I sort of think of the five O's as like a sketchbook, sort of in some ways, where I, if I'm looking for ideas or I just want to see like what far out stuff could happen or could you know become popular soon i like to flip through these and see where things are going and it's especially interesting to look at right after a new set comes out because that's the time when the most innovation kind of happens at least in these these online lists because this is also a place where serious players can try stuff in an environment that's competitive without having to get together the cards and paper and go to a big tournament and see what happens there yeah good point dave so we're saying the criteria for the decks we're going to talk about is that they've had consistent appearances in these lists, whether or not it's one pilot or multiple pilots. Yeah, and also hopefully they've had multiple five O's in the com- in the competitive uh, leagues as well. Yeah, but what's interesting is that I think that this set has turned out to have even more than usual new decks. So by our count, there's five decks that have showed up over the last couple of weeks that need that we think were are worth talking about. And so to make this kind of fun, we thought what we would do is do a review style format for the deck. So what we're going to do is people are going to read a pitch of what the deck is supposed to do, talk a little bit about the the key cards that are in it, any experiences that we've had playing it, and then each one of us is going to give a rating on what we think uh, about the deck. And would anybody like to explain the rating scale? Sure. So the rating scale is sleeve it, believe it, or heave it. Sleeve it means I'm convinced it'll work and I will make it work. This is a deck that we think could make it into more competitive results. Uh, maybe even see play in a paper tournament. Believe it is a deck that looks promising. Maybe it needs some adjustments. Maybe it's not good enough, but something about it speaks to us and suggests it may have potential. And finally, Heave it is a deck that we think is no good. We don't recommend playing it and we're not especially interested in trying it ourselves. Sound fair? Yeah, sounds fun to me. All right. Can't wait. <clears throat> so we're going to hop into these decks right now. So deck number one, I'm going to I'm gonna talk about. And deck number one is the, I think, the deck that everybody was expecting to come out of Ravnica Allegiance, and that is Shaman Tribal. 
Yes. <laughs> also known for some reason as Jun Zhu. Um, Shaman Tribal. <laughs> it, I mean, sure, we can call it Jun Zhu, but to be honest, every every creature in here is a shaman, and I think that's really what the uh, the synergy is based on. So what it is, it's, it's an aggro tribal deck that uses the Shaman Tribe, which somehow there were two kind of notable shamans printed in... Um, in Ravnica Allegiance, they're both the Rakdos guild. So one of them is Rixmati Reveler. The other one is Judith, the Scourge Diva. So what Rixmati Reveler, Reveler does is it's kind of like a mini Bedlam Reveler. So what it has is it's a bear. It's one and a red for a 2-2. And when it comes into play, you have to discard a card and then draw a card. It has Spectacle, two black, red. And if you get to do that... Then it, when it comes into play, you discard your hand and draw three cards. So it has so the four kind of mana bear. effect. Yeah, it's a four mana bear that does about what Bedlam Reveler does, which is it's a pretty cool card on its surface. I think. Um, yep. The other card is Judith the Scourge Diva, which um, she has a lot of text on her. <laughs> she is one black red. Uh, her text. She is a two two, and the text is: Other creatures you control get plus one plus zero. Oh. And then whenever you get, whenever a non-token creature you control dies, Judith the Scourge Diva deals one damage to any target. So it's sort of a blood artist kind of effect in some ways yeah. that, um, but lets you kind of ping down creatures if that's what you really want to do instead. So she's just like, she's like a Rakdos Lord of everything. Right. Like as long as you're playing Rakdos, she's just a plus one, plus one anthem. Right. Plus one, plus okay. O, not plus one, plus one. Oh, okay. Only okay. power. So okay. the deck is built around, um, there's a lot of shamans and some of them are really powerful. So if you look at all of, of magic, there's some wild cards here. And I think if you look at the highlights of cards that are shaman, it's a pretty kind of wide range of cards from tons and tons of various sets. So for example, Elvish, yeah, I didn't even know this was possible. Yeah. Elvish visionary is a shaman. Burning tree emissary is a shaman. Spike shot elder is a shaman. Um, there's Metallic a of, Mimic is a shaman. Metallic Mimic, mimic can be a shaman. <laughs> but the real deal is that the, the, the card that it's really built around, I think, and I actually played this deck in a, uh, in a league, is a card called Rage Forger, which is a three drop, two, two colorless and one red, that uh, when it comes into play, you put a plus one, plus one counter on each other shaman you control. And then whenever a creature you control with a plus one, plus one counter on it attacks you may have that creature deal one damage to target player. So basically what it does is it, when you, you tap your shaman sideways, you get to ping your opponent for one damage at a time, as long as they have a plus one, plus one counter. So, uh, the single, singleton metallic mimic plays into that. There's a bunch of other things. There's a card in here called Flankin Harbinger that is also a shaman. It's a one red shaman that lets you put another shaman or, ele- or elemental on top of your, it lets you put an elemental on top of your deck. And so what happened a lot is that when I was playing this deck, I would basically play a Flamekin Harbinger early and go search up a Rage Forger and put it on top of my deck. The um the last thing that this deck does is that it runs a full set of Collected Company to try to do some kind of real broken stuff as far as just getting a bunch of value out. But the thing that I actually found was that this deck, and it has a, a few 5-0s from a player named Caleb D, who I think is uh, Caleb Gerwald. Yes, it is entirely, yeah. It's and he's a good player and he obviously sees something that I didn't because I just felt like this deck kind of like stalled out so frequently 
when I was playing it that the best hands that it had were ones where I could go burning tree emissary, where I had multiple burning tree emissaries that I could then play into yeah. another two drop and then play rage forger on turn three. So there was a lot of stuff that was really awesome with that. But when I didn't have hands that did that, it felt like the deck just really kind of stalled. Sure. Dave, do you think this brings anything over just like a, another aggressive tribal deck do you think like he was just playing it for like the stream like fun because that's what i mean he's a streamer so i know that people like to play wacky decks on stream yeah i mean it felt to me like you know it didn't really have all the tools that other really kind of strong aggro decks that we've seen lately have and it wasn't anywhere near as like above rate as something like spirits is yeah so just the cards didn't seem amazing on their initial value so at any rate that's kind of how the deck works an aggro deck that kind of stalls out is not really where where I think you want to be, especially when the creatures it tends to leave behind are a bunch of tutus and sometimes elvish visionary. So that's my pitch. What do you guys think? Should we go around the round table and see who's interested in it and who's not? Let's start with Zach. Zach likes a red green deck. What do you think? Oh, I love me a red green deck, but this does not speak to me. This is not bring me joy, as they say. <laughs> Take it to goodwill. It needs a better, more consistent lord than the three mana Rage Forger. That card is cool and will win you a game, but it needs another Rage Forger. It needs a redundant copy of that. Yeah, and if, if you're relying on a card, you have, and I get that you have the Harbinger to tutor it out, but that's just that's not what you want to be doing. And it feels so close to being there, but it needs a little extra oomph, in my opinion. And maybe this will just start showing up, and I'm wrong, and I'm not good at modern. But to me, this is heave it, but on the corner. Of believing it yeah like i want to believe it i mean i love i love an aggressive deck but this just basically this just seems like an aggressive deck like other modern aggressive decks that are just piles of creatures and there's a reason those decks are outmoded right now is they're not doing anything truly strong enough or their creatures aren't disruptive enough they're just creatures that are there yeah that's a great point i forgot to mention when you asked me is that there's no disruption inherent in these cards and yeah big difference so shane what's your rating Oh, I got to give it a heave it. I mean, I just don't think this is modern power level right now. This is like an old zoo deck. Agreed. Stan? Yeah, I'll, I'll echo all that too. I, I would heave this one. I think it kind of falls into the line of decks that are trying to play underpowered or bad cards and make them better. And that's not generally where you want to be, unless maybe you're playing some kind of word deck where you, or, or lantern control, which is full of bad you cards. You can just say scred, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know, even Spike Shot Elder, I don't know how much value you're really getting out of that. A one mana one one that you can pay three to at its worst deal one damage to something. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. a card that really stuck out to me as scraping the bottom of the barrel for playables. So thank you for your heavits. I have to concur with everybody with everybody here. Even after playing it, it felt like I'm definitely don't want to go back and try this again. I do think that there is some universe somewhere people have been trying to to break uh burning tree emissary for a while and i think there's a lot of potential there but i think you need another card like that to really make it go so maybe to sum up our thoughts on this is there are pieces of a deck that is good there but it needs more redundancy of the very good cards i think that's a great summation yeah i i kind of feel the really similar to how you are describing this shaman deck with the deck that i played in a league this week and it's like this rg sort of beats deck that the same player went 5-0 with it three times now not the same player as the as the 
shaman deck we should be clear it's a, it's a different player yeah the the moto player's name is dj falling up g and so he went he's or she has gone five over with this deck three times in a row um and, and it's it looks like on its face like okay you see a, a red green deck and you're like okay this is going to be just a, a red green aggressive deck but it's it has some really weird wrinkles in it where it's has like this value slant with cards like duskwatch recruiter and goblin crater maker of all things so the newer cards it has is Goblin Crater Maker and Gruel Spellbreaker. So Crater Maker is from the last set and Spellbreaker is from the most recent Ravnica set. And it has like Noble Hierarchs, provide your ramp and your exalted triggers. It has four Aether Vials to get your creatures out of your hand onto the battlefield. It has three Smugglers Copters, which is a card I've always wanted to see do some work in modern. Um, it translates your ground power into air power, lets you filter through your deck and, and filter your hand a little bit as well. It has four Gore Clan Rampagers to provide this burst for your finish. The newest cards it has from the latest set is the three Gruel Spellbreakers main deck and four Cinder Vines in the sideboard. So what are you guys thinking about the Spellbreaker? Like, why do you think that's they're, they're bringing it in? Three mana, four, four with Trample. Hoses your opponents, or at least their spells, on your turn. I could see the ceiling, and the floor isn't that low. I mean, for modern, it's pretty low, but it's playable. It's still got a lot of text for three mana. You know, and a lot of decisions that you can make with it. So I could definitely see trying to build a deck around this. You know what I mean? Or just trying it out. It's, um, it's interesting to see this deck, which basically just looks like it's a deck that's set up to, um, punish people who want to play a lot of spells, right? Like it's got Eidolon the Great Revel in it. It's got Cinder Vines in it. And then it has, um, the real spell breaker that makes it harder for people to cast their spells. So if you're expecting a meta where people have lots and lots of spells they're going to play every turn, then I could see starting with something like this to try to get like a core going. But it feels like the way that this ended up is, is really kind of like not where I would have expected it to. Yeah. I don't really get what this deck is trying to do. Exactly. Like, I don't really know why I want, like, vials in this deck when it doesn't really have any vile trick type creatures. And maybe it's to, like, allow you to use your mana to activate Duskwatch Recruiter and then get those creatures onto the battlefield with your vials, perhaps. I think it also helps with uh, Eidolon the Great Revel. That way you're not taking damage from your own critters, you're putting them in with vile. And there are also some neat tricks with vile. Uh, you can do the sort of thing like Violing and Blockers is very good, or Violing and Goblin Critter Maker to Sacrifice it also very good. That's a little more fringe. Yeah, I mean, one thing to keep in mind here is that, like, Vile didn't, was in, uh, Vile was in Merfolk for years when they really didn't have any Trixie cards to yeah. play with it. You know, it's really just about ramp sometimes. No, well, I think it's also, well, it also provided combat tricks with Merfolk. You could Vile out a Lord and blow people out. You can't mm. do that here. Right. So, and like, I, I do like your point, Zach, about the Eidolon, because you're not actually casting the creatures in your hand off the vial. But, I mean, Eidolon in this deck doesn't even make a lot of sense to me, because like, it's one, super heavily green based. And so even getting like a turn two Eidolon is fairly challenging with a mana, and you can't even, you can't use your Noble Hierarch to get it out as well. None of the, none of the colors that the, the Noble produces are red. So you have to get your mana on point. And then you also have to hope that it's going to be a tempo advantage for you because it's kind of a value. It's more of a value deck than really a beatdown deck. And so I don't, I couldn't really tell what the game plan was supposed to be. And so like these creatures take a little while to get going. 
to be something special for their CMC, like Dave was saying, where, you know, on rate, they're not, like, super impressive. Or, like, scavenging ooze. Well, like, it has, like, four scavenging ooze, but two Tarmogoyf. I mean, in this metagame, it makes sense, right? I, I think something that can help us think about what this deck is trying to do is look at the absence of Tireless Tracker and look at the inclusion of Goreclan Rampager. So you're trading off a creature that's going to provide you incremental card advantage and value for something that's going for a bigger burst of damage. But then it has three Duskwash Recruiter. Like, so what's that supposed to be doing? Like, it's like... It, Drawing you into your Gore Clan Rampage here. Like, so it needs... Like, it, you have to, like, set up these cards and to, like, to draw into more cards and hope that, like, your Duskwatch Recruiter isn't dying. Well, I actually think that Duskwatch Recruiter is supposed to be flipped in this deck, or it's okay if yes. it gets flipped in this deck. Because yeah, it, people forget that the backside of this card reduces creature costs by one colorless. Yeah. So if you get one of these out on turn two and then flip it, you can you can basically empty out your hand. You know, on turn three, maybe you can play three creatures. There's a ton of creatures in this deck that are are one colorless and and yeah. a mana or two colored pips and then one colorless. So and you have and you have no draw and no tutors though, right? Besides your Duskwatch recruiter. <laughs> right. yeah, I feel like this deck is missing a collected company or a court of calling. Yeah, why is it playing vile over collected company is a great question, I think. I'm clueless. Like I didn't like well, we should mention you played this deck. I don't think that we we said that. Yeah, I played it. Um I mean, I didn't give it, you know, I, I played it through a league. This is definitely not a large enough sample size to prove anything, but it gives disclaimer, me a disclaimer, for the disclaimer, deck. disclaimer. I mean, I played I played a ton of red green aggro decks in my day and I played a lot of aggro decks in my day. And so I can like I, like I said, I don't know if this is supposed to play as a straight up aggro deck. It doesn't feel like it. Um, but it has like, you know, the smuggler's copter where I'm, I'm not even able to crew it with like my mana dorks. So I guess like, you know, there's a cute thing like fetch up the dryad arbor to fly your chopper and, uh, you know, get in there. But, you know, your noble hierarchs can't crew it. And if you're taking power off the ground and putting it into the air, um, you also lose your toughness and your blockers. And so you're kind of just hoping that they don't like bolt it, um, or that they don't path it out of the air. Uh, with any of the removal. So, like, if you want to beat down, I don't know why you're not just playing any number of other aggressive decks, you know, from anything from, like, the super cheap, like, mono green stoppy to something that has disruption, like the, like, humans or spirits. Like, I don't really get what Gruul Spellbreaker is really offering you that's that interesting. And if it is that interesting, why are you running three instead of four? And then having four uh, of the Rampagers. Yeah, like, four Rampagers is crazy. It's just, like, so, I mean, to me, it just felt like it's not quite tuned yet, but then the player is is doing the exact same list in th- across three different leagues. Yeah, so it's like so maybe they feel it's tuned, and I just don't know what I'm doing, which is perfectly fair. But like the the thing that I, I just didn't feel like it had a coherent and tuned game plan, and it felt like it was just doing something worse than other decks, much like the the shaman deck sounded like to me. But like it has to be at least decent, right? I mean, if it's winning. Or, or the players just playing a ton of games and just like and winning with it once in a while and they're just having fun with it. We never know. That's the problem with the dumps, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I do. I think this deck is the dumps. I think it's a five. I think it's a. I think it's a heave it. I think it's. I think it's no good. Like I just don't get it. Like I don't. I don't think it has a coherent game plan that makes sense in modern right now to me. All right, Zach, you love red green. <laughs> what do you think about this red green? <laughs> um, for this one. I believe it. Mm. Uh, I think we mentioned earlier that uh, we saw two rock lists instead of two jund lists, which is cutting the red. And this is just jund cutting the black. So you lose card disruption, you lose Lily. But I think there is an aggressive deck here that is 
waiting to be molded. I think I'm really confused about the vials over Collector Company, but I do think that there is something potentially explosive here. I think Spellbreaker for two mana off the uh, flipped recruiter is very powerful. Or on turn two with, with Noble. A four mana haste on turn two seems good, especially when they can't kill it when it comes down and swings. So maybe this deck needs more burn. I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what it needs, but I feel like there is the edges of a diamond waiting to be mined. So Zach says believe it. Shane says heave it. Stan? So I'm not usually attracted to Aether Vile decks, but this one has a lot of cards that I like, including Smuggler's Copter, I think is really interesting. Goblin Crater Maker, I think, is a deck that has a lot of potential at seeing legacy play in legacy goblins. Seems really good there. Even Chandra Torture Defiance in the sideboard, as well as Grim Lavamancer. These are just cards that I, I think have a lot of power and potential in modern that are still looking for their home. So while I wouldn't pick it up, I'm a little closer to Zach, or at least his assessment, that this could be molded into a real deck. However, as it stands now, I I pretty much agree with Shane's experience. I'll, I'll at least defer to his experience that it's probably not perfect. Do you you it sounds, it sounds like you believe in the cards, but not the deck. Yeah, I believe in the cards. I, I would heave the deck, but I'd probably sell off the expensive staples and probably <laughs> buy something blue and expensive. <laughs> yourself i say heave it next next all right so for the next deck we're going to talk about we uh alluded to it earlier but it is the second coming of pod yes so the main card in this that's imprinted is prime speaker vanifar so i think i'll just go over her text real quick so everyone knows what we're talking about she is a two four for four mana a two of any color one green one blue tap sacrifice another creature Search your library for a creature card with a converted mana cost equal to 1 plus sacrifice creature's converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield and shelf your library. Activate ability anytime you can activate a sorcery. So, it's pod on a creature at sorcery speed. Mm-hmm. Sweet. Yes, it's good. So, the, what the deck does is you have a bunch of creatures that untap creatures when they ETB. So, you pod into a creature, it untaps her, and you keep doing it. And you're building up this chain eventually to get to a Kiki Jiki. And Kiki just needs to be able to make a token that's one of these creatures that untaps, and you get to go infinite. Yeah, it's sweet. Classic stuff. So I've played against this deck twice. I have won once and lost once. Uh, if you have removal for Prime Speaker, usually you're good. But the time I did that, they also run Quarter Calling and Ultra Evolution. So I was able to, they activated her, I killed her in response. I untap, I'm feeling good, I play my creature, and then at the end of my turn, they cord for her, untap with her, and win. Mm-hmm. More classic stuff. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this deck looks, I'm not going to like, I don't want to try to give away anything about my future rating, but this deck looks legit. Oh, yeah. Like, totally. I mean, it's already gotten, Sam Pardee, who was a well-known pod pro back in the day when pod was still legal has already written an article about it for channel fireball to try to help people understand the chains how to win from different situations i think um it's been popping up all over the place so um yeah i think a big part of this deck also it has that combo kill like you mentioned it has all these other toolbox creatures in it It has kitchen fink stupidity detention eternal witness so if you happen to get stuck or someone's about to hit you out you will be able to grab a creature that can help you fight through it it has Shalai, it has Zealous Conscripts, it has Woodland Bellower. Just because what it does is it you work all the way up the pod chain, it comes into play, it lets you get a second creature so that you can start a second chain, basically. 
Exactly. So you have a toolbox deck that also is a combo deck, and you can choose which side of the deck you're trying to play. Yeah, I mentioned I played against this a few weeks ago, and when it gets the time to set up and go off, it can go off extremely cleanly. Yeah. It's even got the one of Deputy of Detention, another new card showing up in Modern. It's got your Spell Skite. It's got the full complement of mana. Guys, it's got four Birds of Paradise, four Noble Hierarchs. It really wants that Vanifar out there early. Yeah. Exactly. And this sideboard just has so many interesting creatures that have unique effects like Magus of the Moon or Knight of Autumn, etc. So you you have this toolbox and you have a whole sideboard full of silver bolts as well. So I, I'm definitely going to... I ha- I have this deck, basically. I have to get four Prime Speakers. But other than that, yeah. I'm good to go. So yeah, man, do it. I'm definitely going to do it and probably soon. Where did you play Pod earlier, Dave? Pod was before my time, more or less. So I'm curious how you think this compares to, looks like Pod, feels like Pod, based on what you've heard or seen. So I I don't think this is actually so. Despite the namesake card, I feel like um, this is actually much more like a great version of Kiki Cord mm-hmm. than it is like a Pod deck. Realistically speaking, because the thing about Pod was that so I didn't. I, I was, uh, I had a deck during the pod era, but I didn't really play that much because my friend, I hadn't met the full friend group of, that we have to all get together and play modern. It's just so resilient. Pod was so resilient because it was an artifact. And also you could cheat it out at three mana because you could just pay Frexy mana to get it out there. Yeah, it's so always fair. It was, yeah, there's all kinds of problems with pod that weren't just based on the ability. They were also based on the fact you pay life to do stuff. I think that this deck, it's clearly less resilient to it. It's a smaller difference between Splinter Twin and what Blue Moon plus Kiki Jiki looks like today than the difference between, you know, than that difference, I think, between Pod and this deck. So I think that this is probably going to end up being a tier one wow. modern deck in my mind. So I'm just going to throw out there, sleeve it. So straight, straight to the, straight to the top, you know, playable 5% baseline i don't think it's straight to it i think it's going to take a while to yeah yeah yeah, yeah, to, yeah to work out what the cards are and for people to get kind of practice at it but i think it has a good shot to be a normal kind of metagame tier deck yeah i th- i think based on what i've been playing when i played versus what zach has said it sounds like what they're really going to need to get down is the protection like, in what ways are we going to keep this Vanifar on the battlefield? In what ways am I going to make sure this thing is able to be cast and able to stick? Because then I can go off, right? Versus the just, like, cross your fingers and pray type strategy. Right. And so we might be a little too much in that era. But still, this has 31 creatures in it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's rad. There's a lot of slots to play around with. Dave, it sounds like you're just saying sleeve it. I mean, sleeve you did it. say sleeve it. So, yeah. Zach, what are you thinking? Oh, I think sleeve it 100% as well. It does. It's a combo deck that's also a toolbox deck that also can fight through hate and also can do a little bit of whatever you want. I played against it and it was miserable. I the game I won is because I had three screds in a row, which is typically not how things go. Stan, yeah, this is definitely sleeveable. It's an evolution of two proven archetypes: one that was so good it was banned out of existence, and another one that still exists in some form of modern today. I think it's definitely going to make a splash. Yeah, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say sleeve it, but I'm more of a believe it. Like I don't know if I if I agree entirely that it's going to, you know, be 
super playable all the time, but I think that it's so rad and people are going to enjoy playing it so much that I'm fully comfortable saying, if, unless it's going to be a, a $600, you know, totally new deck for you to buy into, you know, get the pieces that you need and have some fun with it. If you like this kind of strategy at all. Great. All right. You guys want to move on to deck number four? Yes. All right, so this next deck is called Sultai Teachings, and it's all about maximizing the power of the new four-mana enchantment called Wilderness Reclamation, which is three and a green enchantment, and it reads, at the beginning of your end step, untap all lands you control. I haven't played with this deck. I have played against it. My round eight opponent in Milwaukee beat me with this deck. And I got to say, without any spoilers, I was really impressed with what I saw. And I thought the deck had a lot of play, despite some vulnerabilities. Basically, the goal of this deck is to land a Wilderness Reclamation and be able to produce a ton of mana at your end step so that you can either Blue Sun Zenith to mill your opponent out, Blue Sun Zenith to draw a bunch of cards to find your own control pieces, and in general, it operated like a controly toolbox because of the mystical teachings being able to tutor up either instants or snapcaster mages. You can double up on the spells that are already in your graveyard or find the exact spell you need to get out of a sticky situation. So is it trying to like ramp into its ability to use all this mana? Like how is it doing that besides just the wilderness reclamation? So the only ramp spell it had was growth spiral the new mm-hmm. instant explorer basically yeah, yeah yeah green and a blue draw a card put a land from your hand onto the battlefield it doesn't have a ton to ramp beyond that but it is trying to make as much mana as possible and it uses cards like remand and logic knot as well as good old-fashioned spell snare fatal push uh even assassin's trophy to kind of control the board in the early plays which is when it's most vulnerable Really, the sweet spot is if if you can land a Wilderness Reclamation while holding Cryptic Command, you're in a really good spot with this deck. In fact, Cryptic Command is so strong, it's one of the only cards that appears as more more than just a one or two of. Yeah. Uh, Any deck with four of Cryptic Command is like, whoa, look out. (laughs) Because you know they're trying to do some crazy big mana stuff, because four Cryptic Command is a real statement, I think. Hey, when does this deck like actually go off and win, do you think, Stan? I've never played against like a Blue Sun Zenith deck. Yeah, neither have I. Um, I think by turn four, if it has Wilderness Reclamation, it's ahead. And at that point, it can start doing the toolboxy things to find the pieces it needs to stay in control of the board. Or if you don't do anything, it can punish you at end step by finding the cards it needs to set up future plays. Generally, it's going off late game. So it's going off after it's cast a couple Wilderness Reclamations, and it can produce enough mana to Blue Sun Zenith you to draw your whole deck so you lose on your draw step. Yeah, a really interesting and cool thing about this deck is it seems to almost exclusively operate during the opponent's end step or during their turn, and that you take your turn, play your land, and pass, and holding up a counter spell and if they don't play anything casting a growth spiral seems like a pretty good move and it would just feel pretty gross to okay i pass okay draw a card play a land now it's my turn play another land is it doing any kind of like nexus of fate mystical teachings loops like is it cheating out nexus of fate so it is running uh, at least one nexus of fate in most of the lists i'm seeing 
though I I didn't see any Nexus of Fate loops. I saw Nexus of Fate as almost like another remand, as just a tempo play. So it's not the win con, it's just to keep you going. Can someone explain to me Wilderness Reclamation? So is there a way that if I go into my end step with all my lands untapped, that I can tap all my lands for mana and then have it untap and tap them again? Yes. That's exactly it. Yeah, it kind of works like Amulet of Vigor in that regard because all those triggers go on the stack. So you can untap and fill up your mana pool while those triggers are resolving. Basically what you're saying is you can go to turn five. Let's say you're under no cover. Like there's not there's no interaction coming from your opponent. You can go into turn five and cast Blue Sun Zenith on someone for seven. Woof. Yeah, but at that point you're pretty much casting Blue Sun Zenith on yourself. That's what so I mean. You yeah, can... you're casting on yourself for sure. Yeah, yeah, in the early game you're casting it on yourself so you can draw a bunch of cards and find more reclamations or other control pieces you may need. In the late game, you're snap casting it back. Assuming you only have one zenith, you snap cast it back. To paint a picture, my opponent was asking me, how many cards do you have in your deck? And I'd say, 40. And my opponent would say, okay, well, I'll probably need another turn. And then the following <laughs> turn, they'll say, okay, draw 41 cards. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> yeah. And this is on like turn eight or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. So it's a real mill deck. <laughs> it's sort of like blue white control meets a big mill finish so it's instead of running sweepers it's running tempo plays and sort of removal spells i think it's interesting how there's not any hand disruption in this deck there's a fatal push but there's not any thought caesar inquisition who needs it i guess not <laughs> well it's probably it's probably more powerful to snap back like your fatal pushes and your spell snares and your assassin's trophies than it is to snap back your late game hand disruption when they're just top decking like who cares at that point so while playing it i did score one win i think it was clear that it has some glaring vulnerabilities especially if decks that can win before turn four or if you can land a blood moon before turn four you really shut this deck off Likewise, if you get rid of their graveyard, if you have Leyline of the Void or Rest in Peace, they're probably in a pretty bad place. I don't know if they can win. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know how to assess this at all. Like, this is, it's not my style of deck. It's doing, it's attack, it's attacking on a very different axis. No, as, no. Uh, we like to say, um, no, but it's, it's doing something different. I don't know how to even look at this deck. I haven't played with it or against it. I feel like I'm really challenged to, to give it a fair rating. But I can, I'll give it one anyway. <laughs> we just know it's unfair. It's an unfair rating. Yeah, exactly. Shane, Shane never rates things unfairly. No, not me. I'm going to give it a believe it just to, just to cut all you guys off. I'm going I'm to give it a believe it because it looks rad. Um, it's, it's, it's winning. It's, it's still untuned. Like a deck like this winning without being tuned at all is probably saying something. I think believe it is the smarter assessment since it has pretty glaring vulnerabilities. But having seen what it does when it goes off, and generally being a person who loves playing Crypto Command, this is the type of deck that I would sleeve. Yeah, I think this fits into sort of a theme of the decks we've been talking about, which are decks that have been on the fringes of things and have lurked around and have always been missing something and now are emerging. People have always wanted a, a Sultai control deck to exist. Now the printing of Gross Spiral and Wilderness Reclamation is pushing, pushing this into real competitive deck territory. So what's your rating, Zach? I believe it, quite frankly. Believe it. Uh, so <clears throat> I just want to say that it's funny that Zach said that because my the spoilers that I almost picked for Ravnica Allegiance were Growth Spiral and Wilderness Reclamation, mostly because from uh, inspiration from our friend Jake, 
who um, was a big believer in in those cards. I think that he and I kind of both thought that it would be in a Bant kind of control deck. And uh, it's pretty awesome to see it turn up here in this kind of Sultai instead, mostly because of mystical teachings, right? And so adding that to the equation makes a ton of sense to me. And so I think I'm going to put this in the Believe It category as well, just because you never know when control is going to be good. It does have a good plan, a good active plan for a kill, but it's a very like kind of long-term kind of vibe. I think I'm going to leave this one and believe it for now and see how it works in uh, metagames when control is good. Cool. Okay. You're also talking about the next one, aren't you, Stan? Yeah, this is another deck I played against. Uh, my friend Sam sleeved it up and took it to Dice Dojo. So, so Sam's vote is sleeve it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how great he did with it, to be honest. Uh, maybe he did well, I just don't remember. But he sleeved it up, and we played a couple games between rounds up at Dice Dojo in Chicago. And frankly, this is a deck that a lot of people have seen. It's Electro Dominance Living End. And quite frankly, living dominance. Yeah, it's really just an evolution of Living End, which is already a deck that has two forms. Yeah, so what makes this deck uh, an evolution of Living End is the addition of Electro Dominance makes it easier to cast Living End. It essentially turns Living End into a two drop with no suspend. The cost is that you're two for one in yourself, potentially, and you're not getting any damage off of the electro dominance but if you're casting living end and it's wide open chances are you're setting yourself to win on that turn or the following yeah so what does electro dominance do exactly like what's the what's the sequence here so electro dominance is red red x instant it deals x damage to any target and you may cast a card with cmc x or less from your hand without paying its mana cost so the way this deck and many living decks often work is they play cycling creatures, cheap cycling creatures that cost one to cycle. You put a bunch of creatures in your deck, draw a ton of cards until you find Living End. Then you cast Living End, which is a sorcery. Each player removes all creature cards from his or her graveyard from the game, then sacrifices all cards on the battlefield and puts all cards into play removed this way. Yeah, it's weir- It's worded really strangely. Yeah, long story short, it puts whatever is on the battlefield into your graveyard and whatever is on the graveyard into the battlefield. And then it's a symmetrical effect. Well, yeah. and the most important thing is it has no CMC. Right. Yeah, because it's a spend. So essentially, and you can, as soon as you have two red mana, you can cast Electric Dominance and for X equals zero, and then you just cast Living End. Mm-hmm. Correct? You have that correct. You could, in theory, also cast Ancestral Vision off Electro Dominance if you need to find some more pieces. And uh, as the previous evolution of Living End, you can also cast that off of As Foretold. Yeah. So I, I think what makes this deck interesting is that it adds some redundancy and consistency to that combo. That's the big the big thing here that we talked about in previous, previous spoiler episodes is that you want to look for things that make other cheaty kind of ways of doing stuff redundant and so much like brawl became the number one brother to goblin electromancer now electro dominance is the number one brother to as foretold Mm -hmm. so you can do all kinds of stuff like you can play ancestral vision for for nothing at instant speed and draw four cards instant speed is insane yeah yeah this is another end step strategy where you just end step electro dominance into living end and you get around end step casting restrictions i mean here here's here's the deal with this right is that it's it's a better version of mono blue living end 
right? It's like we took Mono Blue Living End and made it just straight up better by giving it a redundant effect for As Foretold. And so now we have all these cards that were already pretty good. Like There's plenty of creatures that came from Amonkhet to make this deck work. And now we have another enabler for Living End. So I think that the deck is just better now. There's a, a friend of ours at uh, Dice Dojo named Chike who is on Mono Blue Living End, and I spoke to him about this when I saw him recently, and he concurs with that, that he thinks that blue-red is probably just the better way to go. Hmm. That's interesting. Just a, just a straight-up upgrade. I did watch Gabriel Nassif playing this in the Modern Challenge a couple of weeks ago, and that gave me a lot of uh, kind of confidence in the deck as well, just because Hall of Famer, top five player of all time probably took it to a 6-1 in Modern Challenge. And so I think that means there's some legs here. So do we get some ratings here, Stan? I'm a believer such that I could see myself sleeving this deck up. And really? Yeah, I just, I love the end step big play that lets you clear your opponent's board while putting pretty much an unbeatable creature presence. The problem is it's super vulnerable to sweepers. Likewise, it's super vulnerable to graveyard hate, but I don't know. Seems fun, especially if you're playing Remand, Cryptic Command, Chalice of the Void. You know, you you have some toolboxy cards that could give yourself some protection if you want to. You know, go for it, Zach. I'll say sleeve it. I would not sleeve it, but I encourage someone who likes this kind of deck and likes graveyard-based strategies to sleeve it. I've played against the mono blue version of Living End quite a bit, and it's a very good deck. But it often felt like if he could not hit his ass foretold, I was going to be able to get in there. So with that redundancy, it's much better. And this deck is weak to sweepers, but not damage-based ones. I run Anger of the Gods, and a lot of these creatures are a little bit too big to get sweeped by Yeah, they're huge. So Exactly. So you have to be running a straight board clear, not a damage-based one, in order to get past these guys. So I think this is going to take an already, in my mind, competitive deck and push it further. Yeah, I think people who want to play this style of deck are going to pick it up and enjoy it and win with it. It's just one of those decks that doesn't call to a lot of people for whatever reason. Yeah, Living End isn't cheap, so either you play Living End or (laughs) you're shelling out 25 bucks a card. Yeah, at least this deck seems like it actually plays a little bit more interestingly than a lot of the builds of Living End. Like, I think a lot of the older builds were just very straightforward. Like, you just, you know, your combo worked or it didn't. And this, I think, maybe gives you a little bit more play and lets you have a little bit more fun with it. Shane, it also has your favorite creature of the last... Striped Liver Reminder, of course, yes. No, no, Nimble Obstructionist. I'm not talking about that card. <laughs> so good. So, Shane, where what's your rating? This is tough. I mean, I'm gonna just I'm just gonna split the difference and say believe it. Um, it's probably a sleeve it, but I'm not buying in these cards. I mean, it would probably be like eight hundred dollar deck for me. Well, I say believe it, but I'm I'm uh, I'm not gonna try to sleeve this deck up myself. It's just not totally my my thing. But uh, no. I think it's really I think it's a good deck, and someone will will really enjoy playing it. All right, that was a pretty fun game with my fellow sleevers, heavers, and believers. But we got to take a quick break, and when we return, we're going to do another listener question. One one Stay thing really us. quick. <clears throat> so I think this is a great thing for people to participate in the in uh, Reddit. If they dislike our ratings, please hop on the thread uh, where we launch. Let's just post and tell us what you think about these decks. If you hate something that we loved, if you love something that we hate, let's talk about it. Yeah, if we missed a deck entirely that we should be paying attention to. Yep, throw that in there too. All right, we'll see y'all on Reddit. We'll be right back with the wind down, the best part of the podcast. 
says says Stan every time. <laughs> So tough question this week. Yes. Yeah, we have to define a term that we came up with just because we thought it sounded good. Did we come up with this though? I feel like I feel like we just sort of captured a zeitgeist. <laughs> I, I've seen this phrase, no joke, used more on the Hearthstone Reddit than on a Magic Reddit. So take that as you will. Ah, that's a good point. I haven't been in the Hearthstone Reddit for like two and a half years. So yeah. So the question we're talking on this week's wind down came from a Reddit user by the name of Jamirinov. Is that Jam- Jamiroquai's brother-in-law? Oh, I have, you stole my joke. Yeah, you stole my joke too <laughs> while I was saying it. <laughs> I thought that was just Jamiroquai's Reddit name. Yeah. <laughs> Jamiroquai was taken. He had to go with Jamirinov. Jamiroquai through the lens of Dostoevsky. Jamiranon and Jamiranov. All right, so Jamiroquai <laughs> asks, what does the casual spike mean? Because I've heard it a couple times, and I'm not sure what it means. This is a That's great a question. question. Yeah, we just started throwing it out there without ever really defining it. Yes, we did. Well, that's the. I mean, we, we, we kind of self-defined it. Like, I mean, it was sort of like a, it was a soft definition, right? Where it's like, it's, it's, we just wanted to put a, a modifier on spike. Through the lens of like Rosewater, Spike is the player that wants to win, right? And takes, takes enjoyment through winning. And I think the way I wanted to spin this was casual Spike is a player who enjoys winning and wants to win, but kind of wants to do it on their own terms more often than not, or at least sometimes. Mm. Dave disagrees. I think that's a good way to phrase it. For I, for a while, struggled with the term spike, and I don't feel like it described me. But once we sort of got this into order, I felt like casual spike was much more in my way. Because I like Scred, and I've clearly put a lot of time into learning how to play with it and getting good. But if I wanted to do better, I could have bought into a better deck. I, I have burn, right? I could be running burn all the time. But something calls to me about winning with the deck that I feel like is me, me showing myself, but it's not some sort of... Uh, I'm playing Stormtide Leviathan, it's my pet card, or I'm comboing off all these uh, special things. It's This is a deck that is good, maybe on the fringe, but I'm going to keep playing with it because it, it, it represents magic in a certain way to me. So here's what, um, here's what I think kind of casual spike means and why it's really important to us as a podcast. And that is that I think that the more that the four of us spoke to each other about our kind of um, learnings and kind of winnings and kind of victories and losses in the, the way that we played magic, the more that all of us realized that we all liked winning, but none of us are trying to, to win. strive for, yeah, we all, we all like to win. We want to win, but none of us are trying to strive for pretending like we're the best player in the room or like we're people who have aspirations of playing on the pro tour or winning a GP or something like that. Um, and so I think that while we thought about it for a little bit, we were trying to figure out well, what makes sense for those of us who want to win, but also know that our resources in time or whatever are not um, commensurate with people who can really get to the tip, tip, top of the game. And so that's why I think when we started talking about getting these this podcast together, the term kind of casual spike just kind of stuck for who our audience for this podcast was supposed to be. Yeah, I, I think sort of a shorthand for this could even be someone who's a casually competitive player. 
So you are still competitive. You're still going to tournaments. You're still tuning your list, but it's, it's a, it's a hobby, right? It's something you're doing when you have the free time to do it. To piggyback a little bit on what Zach is saying, I do play the occasional SCG Open and the occasional GP main event, but I don't think that makes me any less of a casual spike because I'm not grinding these tournaments out and I'm not going out of my way to travel across the country and fly and book a hotel room. I'm still crashing on someone's floor on my air mattress at a tournament I drove to because I just love playing Magic and I want to play what's within my means, and that's more important to me than being a top eight finisher. Yeah, I I just think that's just really great. And to add to that, uh, I think a big part of it too is for these bigger tournaments, it's more of a, a chance to test your skill and see how far you can go because it's a higher level than your LGS is. So, like, like I said, I went into this one over the weekend. Five four is my goal, right? And that's someone who's going to spike that. That's not what their goal is. That's not what they're looking to do. That's a failure on on their end, right? But for me, that would have been amazing. Can I ask you guys a question? Yeah, please. Do you think a person who has a modern deck that they have foiled out can be a casual spike? Why you put me on blast, Dan? <laughs> oh yeah, Zach's Zach's deck is foiled out, right? One of yeah. Zach's. Two copies of Scred is spoiled out. He, <laughs> Stop telling he's got people the Prince about version and the Popper version. He's got he's got his <laughs> off offsite backup of of Scred that he keeps in a safe deposit box somewhere in case something catastrophic happens to his other copy, so he can get it back immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Run to turn the, the keys. Get to the yeah. We turn the two keys. Um, I think the, the other thing that we should talk about really quickly with this is what Zach touched on at the very beginning, which is when I first met. Zach, we had a lot of conversations on our Slack channel about being a spike and being interested in winning. And I think that the term spike itself has just gotten kind of loaded for a lot of people and comes with a lot of intimidation. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, hearing that was kind of an interesting thing and kind of a sad thing because I really consider myself to be a, a spike. I'm not like the best player, like I said, but I also don't feel like that means that I'm a, I'm necessarily a bad person or a person who's argumentative or I'll know it all or whatever. And so I felt like as we started to focus in on who this podcast was for, you know, adding that term that it's kind of like the nicer version of spikes, the kind of spikes that aren't afraid to ask a dumb question and get, get the real answer, the type of people who can have an honest discussion with having have some kind of like, errors of knowing everything about a given situation that's what we're really striving for when we talk to each other what we want to share with people on the podcast and so that's why that term kind of stuck for us for sure and that's why we all got it tattooed on our knuckles exactly yeah i ran out of fingers it doesn't it doesn't fit it fit really weird um yeah i think it's i mean another good point dave right like it's just i think it's a strive for learning and always being open to learning from anybody even if you think you're the best player in the room, being willing to learn from every game you play, every match you play, every article you read, every person you interact with on the internet or in, you know, at the, at the game store, it's an opportunity for you to, to get better and, and also an opportunity to help other people around you. And, and that can be true of tournament grinders and professional players. You know, something I really exactly. admire about Jerry Thompson is how often on the game show he talks about, learning at a tournament and trying to improve and sometimes his goal is to just learn a new deck rather than finishing top eight and i think he's i think it's safe to say he's beyond a casual spike right yes yeah. maybe yeah 
So there's definitely a bit of like technical ability that the term implies that we don't have, but that we're trying to get to. All right. I love my casual spike buddies, and I really love talking to all the casual spikes who've reached out to us on the show. So we're in this community together. There's no harm in wanting to win as long as you're nice about it and also realistic about who you are as a player. We can all fit at the table. I think that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast yet, please do that if you like what you hear. And if you really like what you hear, leave us a review on iTunes because that's going to help us find new listeners and hopefully find more modern players in the future to help improve their game. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or even pick our brain on something in modern, you can tweet us at the dive down or email the dive down at gmail, all one word. If you see us on Reddit, feel free to send us a message there as well. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and break the meta! Mm-hmm.